Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning once again. Uh, today we're going to continue our series titled True Riches. Why don't we take a minute and pray before we jump into our subject? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you are God, that you are sovereign over everything. And despite the things that we're facing, oh Lord, we realize that none of this is out of your control. We know that you're using even the difficult things in our lives to bring about good. I thank you, Lord, that the church continues to be the church regardless of what happens. And we ask you for grace as we navigate this and help us to have a heart of thanksgiving. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I was growing up, my parents never seemed to have enough money to support the family. They just struggled to make ends meet. My, my dad was a pastor like I am, uh, but the church that he pastored in Youngstown, Ohio, just did not give him enough money to support a family of six. And so my dad went to the board and asked permission to earn extra money as a substitute teacher in the public school system. And their response was, yes, you can do that if you do it on your day off. My dad only had one day off and he found himself teaching as a substitute teacher and he absolutely hated him. The kids used to mock him. They'd say things like old baldy and things like that. And so after my freshman year of high school, our family moved to a suburb of Chicago, Downers Grove, to a much better situation. At the time, we lived in a parsonage. For those that aren't familiar with a parsonage, a parsonage is a, is a house that's owned by the church. And the family of the pastor can live there for free, but of course, they lower the salary to compensate for that, which is quite appropriate. Uh, the problem, of course, with a parsonage is that you can't earn equity on your house. And so, uh, but it was still a wonderful situation. And the parsonage we lived in was fairly large. And it was also, I believe, much older than any of the houses in our neighborhood. I think it was probably 10 to 20 years older based on just the style of the house. I don't know for sure. What I know is that all the houses around ours were so much nicer than ours. The people that built houses after ours were ones that I consider to be kind of wealthy. Our neighbors were, were wealthy. They were doctors. They were business owners. They were lawyers. They were all ones that I felt were doing financially better than we were. As some of you know, for example, a few blocks from our house, there was a stop sign and you had to stop there because perpendicular to that road was an air, an air a runway. Uh, and all the houses that were built along this runway had hangers, plane hangers attached to their houses. It was just, just incredible. It made their houses look so big. And these were people that would taxi out the back of their hangar and go right onto the runway and take off. I earned money in that neighborhood by washing and waxing one of the guy's planes. And he not only paid me, but he took me up to fly in it once, and he even allowed me to fly it for a little bit. I had another brother who earned money cutting the grass of one of these plane owners, and in, 
exchange for cutting the grass, he was given free flying lessons. So when you hear this story and, and, and this change, this moving into this particular neighborhood, you might think, well, that's just a, just a wonderful setup. I mean, I wish I lived in a neighborhood like that, but that is not how I felt about it at the time. Uh, the truth of the matter is I was very, very embarrassed by our situation because I believe that we were the poorest family in the neighborhood. And so all of our neighbors, for example, would drive nice cars, but the car we drove was never a nice one. I was embarrassed by some of the cars we drove. Neighbors wore nice clothes. I often wore hand-me-downs or, or clothing that people in the church gave to our family, I think because they felt sorry for us, or clothing from Kmart. At Christmas time, our kids would, or our neighborhood friends would always get a lot of gifts and expensive gifts we would end up getting clothes and maybe one toy or two, and that was it. I used to be so embarrassed when some of my friends would say, what did you get for Christmas? And so I really felt like, like we were just in a shameful position. But the longer I lived in that neighborhood, the more I noticed something. I noticed that money did not equate to happiness. I noticed the fact that our neighborhood kids all wanted to play at our house and not their houses. And I think part of the reason was that there was happiness in our home. And maybe it's even because of all of this that so many of our neighbors came to faith in Jesus Christ because they saw that we had something they didn't have. And a lot of these neighbors, they had money, but they didn't have other things. I'm thinking of a friend of mine who at the bus stop one day. He, he came from a family that had a lot of money. They had a huge built-in swimming pool in their backyard that they allowed us to swim in with the shallow end and deep end, a cement pool. It was huge. And this kid had money, though, to go out and buy drugs and 30-some, well, it's longer than that. When I was a teenager, I think drugs were harder to get than they are now, I don't know. But anyway, he told me as we stood at the bus stop, he said, I've been high on drugs for the last 30 days. I've not come down and it scares me to death what's gonna happen when I do. This was a young man who had everything, but he ended up in prison and then he ended up dying young. And we learn it's not about money. That's not what life is about. The apostle Paul was a mentor to a young man named Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, he wrote to Timothy these words. He said, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains." Now, let me mention at the outset that a lot of people misquote this verse. They quote it to say money is the root of all kinds of evil, but that's not what the verse says. Money is actually something that's neutral. It's what you do with it that matters. What Paul is talking about here is the love of money. When we have this love for money, a pursuit of money, that this becomes the goal of our lives, it opens the door to other things. A scholar by the name of A.D. Litfin explains this. He says, it's, it is a crucial chink through which other vices gain access. A chink, that's an old word. It means a gap or an opening. And this scholar was saying that when we love money, when we pursue that, it opens the door for all kinds of things, things that people do in order to get rich. 
And Paul says many people, because of this, have wandered from the faith and they've suffered in various ways. And I've seen this happen to people. I've watched some who were materially becoming more and more prosperous, but spiritually they were, were becoming more and more impoverished. And oftentimes even we as Christians can be so distracted from what really matters. As Josh talked about last week, you cannot love both God and money. And I have to admit when I read that, my first temptation is to disagree. Jesus is the one who said it. He said you cannot love both God and money. And I I tend to, in my own reasoning, want to say, well, yes, you could. I mean, you can can love God this much and you can love money just this much. But, But Jesus said, no, it's either one or the other because only one can be your master. There's only one that you're serving. And we have to decide which one it's going to be. Now, a couple weeks ago, I shared from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and I made the point that that section, those verses, verses 6 through 14 of 2 Corinthians 9, lay out really the best case for generosity, for giving. And Paul mentions a number of things in that section about why it's, it's good to give and why it's good to be generous. Well, today I want to wrap up this short series by looking at some things that Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. And I'm calling these seven commandments for managing your wealth because I believe that this section provides the best place in the New Testament for a number of principles related to how we handle our money. Now, it doesn't cover everything. For example, he doesn't address in this section the problem of debt which is something that should be discussed. But he does mention a number of things that would be very instructive for us as we consider gaining wealth and what to do with what we have. In 1 Timothy 6, I'd like to read beginning in verse 17. We're gonna read these three short verses and then we're gonna break it apart. Beginning in verse 17, we read, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant, or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all good things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come so that they may take hold of life that is real. Now, let's mention at the outset here that Paul is addressing people, he says, who are rich. And I think our tendency when we read this is to think, well, that's not me. You know, we might look at this and, you know, Paul says, instruct those who are rich in the present age to do a number of things. And I might be tempted to think, well, I'm glad these are verses that don't apply to me because I'm not a rich person. Like I can skip over these ones. But I want us to understand that wealth is really relative. In other words, I think that most of us would be considered wealthy by this definition. I think we're all rich. About five years ago, I read about a study that concluded that if your household income is right at the center, right at the average of the household income of people living in the United States, if you're right at that number, which at the time I think the household average income was 53,000, that you make more than... 99% of all the people on the planet, you are in that top 1%. 
that you are wealthy. Now, we don't tend to think of ourselves that way because we compare ourselves with other Americans, but in this world, we are considered wealthy. My wife and I went to Jamaica on our honeymoon, and at one time, we decided to take a a ride on some horses. And these horses, it was really fun because we were going to go up this mountain where they were growing coffee, and and this guy was leading us on his horse, and I hadn't ridden a horse for years and years, and so we, we went up on this mountain and we came back down. I was just thrilled that I hadn't fallen off or something. But when we got to the end of it, the guy that led us insisted that we give him a tip. And not only that, he told us the amount he wanted us to give him. He wanted us to give him $5. Now, $5 doesn't sound like much, but this was 32 years ago. My wife and I were on our honeymoon. We did not have much money. We'd end up spending money for things related to either the the wedding or our new place where we were going to be living, and we just didn't have much money. And so I, I looked at this guy, and I said, you know, we're just kind of a broke, newlywed couple. We just, we really don't have much money. And this guy looked at me and he said, you're here, aren't you? He said, I'm never going to be able to leave this country. And I thought, that's a really good answer. I realized we had spent more on our honeymoon than this guy probably would make in a year. Needless to say, he got the tip. Again, we don't see ourselves as being rich, but think about the things that we stress over. There are a lot of what I'd call first world problems that we kind of get bothered about. For example, a new iPhone comes out and they didn't produce enough of them. So you have to wait for your iPhone. That's certainly a first world problem. If you're bothered that one of your cars needs a new sticker on the back or, or an inspection sticker, that's a first world problem. If you're, if you're bothered that your steak was a little bit overcooked, that's a first world problem. If you have leftovers that you're continually throwing away, that's a first world problem. I've thought before that garbage disposals eat better than a lot of people on this planet eat each day. If you look in your closet and you see 15 shirts and 15 dresses, but you conclude that I have nothing to wear, these are first world problems. And so when Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present age, I'm just making the point, it's almost all of us. It's not all of us, but it's, it's most of us that are watching this and listening to me. So Paul mentions seven things, seven commandments for managing our wealth. And I want to go quickly through these. The first one is this. He says, be on guard against pride. In the first part of verse 17, Paul wrote, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant, not to be proud, A scholar by the name of G.W. Knight explains the problem this way. He said, the rich are tempted to think that their greater monetary value indicates that they themselves are of greater worth or value. Oftentimes, the more we have, the more we can look down on other people. When we're driving a nice car, for example, we look at someone who's driving one that's not, and we're tempted to think, oh, poor you. You know, we think we're in a superior position. And I don't have much, I don't consider myself in any sense to be wealthy except by the definition I've already given. But I know that when I've gone to some countries, third world countries, I've I've just realized that something kind of clicks in and I begin to think of myself as this wealthy American because this is how people tend to treat me. 
And it's very easy for us to look down on other people. I've been embarrassed by the behavior of Americans in other countries because they, they walk in like they own the place and they forget that they're, they're merely guests, that there's a certain humility that we need to have. But even if we don't have a lot, when we have more than this other person, we begin to look down on that person. And that's a problem. And that's a problem that could be true in the church as well. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote to a number of churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, and he talked about this problem of showing partiality to those who had wealth. He said, in your churches, what's happening is that someone will come in who is well-dressed, and they look like they have money and resources, and, and you give them the very best seats. In fact, you might ask someone to move to sit on the floor so that they can have this nice seat. And then someone comes in that doesn't have much. They seem to be dressed poorly. And you say to that person, why don't you sit down by my feet? You go over there or you can stand over the, you don't get a good spot. James described that and he used the word evil. He said, this is the result of evil thoughts that we don't regard people based on how much they have. Our value has nothing to do with how wealthy we are. Now, saying this again, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. In fact, I wish everybody was wealthy. And thankfully, most of the people I know that I consider to be truly wealthy are people who are refreshingly humble. And I really mean that. The people that I know that I put in that category of being really wealthy are refreshingly humble, but there's still a temptation associated with affluence. And it's easy to be proud and we allow ourselves to be viewed certain ways. And then I think we also treat other people certain ways based on their pocketbook. And so we need to be on guard against pride. A second commandment related to managing our wealth is don't put your trust in wealth. Again, let's look at the first part of verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. Now, I think we all have the tendency to find our security in our bank account, to feel much more secure when there's a lot of money there. And, and Paul here, by the way, is not speaking against saving money or preparing for the future or anything like that, but he is speaking about this idea we cannot trust that that even if we have a lot of resources, we need to put our trust in God as one who provides, which I'll talk about in a minute. Solomon wrote that in Proverbs 18 to 11, and remember Solomon was incredibly wealthy. He said, a rich man's wealth is his fortified city in his imagination. It's like a high wall. And so he looks at what he has and he says, I've, I've got everything I need, I'm taken care of, I've saved up, nothing ever bad could happen to me, I'm secure. But what happens when the economy tanks? What happens when the stock market crashes? What happens when things are falling apart due to COVID-19? What happens when we see our IRAs dwindling and going down? What do we do with that? And why does this matter that we not trust in our wealth? Well, two reasons. Number one is if we make our wealth the object of our trust, that, of course, is defined as idolatry. You know, when we love our wealth, when that's where our treasure is, our heart is going to be there as well. But second, Paul talks about the fact that there's no certainty involved with our wealth, and this is true. Economies can crash overnight. 
Many of you have heard stories perhaps of what happened in the Great Depression, how businessmen were jumping from high-rise buildings. They saw everything they had just reduced to nothing, and that's where all their hope had been placed, and without anything, they took their own lives. That's not where a trust is supposed to be. And so Paul says, be on guard against pride, first of all. Second, he says, don't put your trust in wealth. And then the third commandment is the flip side of it. Trust God to provide for your needs. I find it interesting and noteworthy that on our money are the words in God we trust. And I think that's a wonderful thing. In God we trust. What's interesting to me about it is just this question, why is that phrase on our money? I mean, I know that the phrase appears in other places, but think about it for a moment. Why would you put on a dollar bill the words, in God we trust? It's money. It's supposed to be spent for different things. And I've never looked into the answer to the question, but I think it's pretty obvious that the founding fathers realized that even though you have money in your hand, that should not be the source of your trust. The very instrument we we use to buy other things preaches to us the message, in God we trust. In God we trust. That's where our hope is supposed to be. Let's look at verse 17 again and focus on this last phrase. Instruct those who are rich in the present age, not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. Then he says, but on God, who richly provides us with all things. So set your hope on God. Remember, he's the one that richly provides us with all things. Paul is reminding us, well, ultimately, God is the one who provides for us anyway. I like how Pastor Andy Stanley talks about the last two points I made. He said, I will not place my trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. I will not place my trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. Now, here's the question that I think we all need to face. Do I believe that God is able to take care of my daily needs? Even if I have wealth, Is that where I am putting my trust? Is my trust in God to take care of me? If I lost everything, do I believe that God would still be faithful and take care of my needs? Would I be able to trust him? I have often thought with this idea of the Lord's prayer where the, you know, in the Lord's prayer you pray, give us this day our daily bread. And I've often thought, you know, in this country, that's not a prayer we need to pray, is it? We pray things like, give me this month my daily bread. Give me this year my daily bread. There are some of us that I think do struggle day to day, but most of us don't need to pray this prayer. And it's very easy for us to forget that God is the one who provides everything for us. And we need to remember that every single day. This is why, by the way, before I eat, I I thank God for it. I don't take it for granted. I stop, even if it's in my own heart, I stop and I say, God, I acknowledge this came from you and I I give you thanks for it because you're the one who's provided it for me. Now, in the Old Testament, God tried to get the Israelites to get this idea about how God provides for their daily bread and he did it through this thing called manna. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and every day God provided for their meal. But if you remember about the manna, they were not allowed to save it. Any manna that that lasted the night ended up being uh, with worms in it the next day. Maggots would fill it the next day. 
And so God told them, listen, every day the man is going to be there. You got to trust me for this. And every day they'd wake up and they wouldn't have enough for the next day. They'd have to trust it for this day and this day. And then God tested them. He said, now on the Sabbath day, which is Saturday in our calendar, on the Sabbath day, I don't want you collecting manna. What I'm going to do is I'm going to provide for you the day before. On Friday, whatever you collect, it's going to be twice as much. On Friday, if you keep it in a jar overnight, it will not have maggots the next day. When God first started doing this, the Israelites didn't trust God though. And so the next morning they woke up on that Sabbath day and they realized there was nothing there because they didn't believe that God would provide for them the day before. God was trying to teach them every day, trust me for this. And I think the Lord's prayer has this in mind and I think Jesus had this exact idea in mind when he was talking to the devil and the devil tried to tempt him to turn the stones into bread. And Jesus' response was this, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, I, I'm gonna hold on to that to feed me. I'm, I'm taking God at his word. I'm trusting his promises. God says he'll take care of me and I'm gonna trust in that. I'm not gonna take matters into my own hands over here. I'm gonna trust God to take care of my daily needs and of course God took care of him. Now when we trust in our wealth, a sign that we're doing that is we become very afraid. A sign that we're doing that as we begin to hoard. A sign that we're doing that as we become selfish and we don't want to share anymore. A sign that we're doing that is that wealth becomes in our life like a God. So be on guard against pride. Don't put your trust in your wealth, but trust God to provide for your needs. A fourth commandment is enjoy what God has given you. Enjoy what God has given you. Now this is a point that might surprise some of you, but it's okay to enjoy the things that you have. And some people have this idea, well, if it's something physical, we shouldn't find enjoyment in it, but God says we should. Let's read verse 17 again in 1 Timothy 6. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of God, I'm sorry, uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to Enjoy. I love the fact that that little phrase is at the end. He provides all things for our enjoyment. You know, we celebrate Thanksgiving this week and it is so good to express our thanksgiving to God for all the ways in which he's taken care of us. I think sometimes though in our country, we have a hard time being thankful for what we have. In fact, I think we have a hard time even seeing all the things that God has given to us. And this is the place where I think we need to be, to recognize that every wonderful thing comes from God and to celebrate that. Thank you, God, for giving us this. Thank you that we can enjoy that, this little simple pleasure. I love the fall. One of the main reasons is the changing of the color of the leaves, at least where we live. And it's just beautiful. And I've often wondered about that. Uh, just this thought, at least, has come to my mind. God, that's just a nice touch. You know, why did you not just make the leaves turn brown and then drop? Why do you add this little extra really nice touch to your creation by causing them to turn red and, and other colors, yellow and, and rust color and orange, and, and they're just absolutely beautiful. And we celebrate that, and this is a, an expression of the goodness of God. God in his goodness created the Garden of Eden to be a wonderful place and a place that we would enjoy. 
And it is okay to enjoy all the things that God has given to us. But I realize that it's, it's hard to do it in our affluent culture. Let me give you an example. The most joyful I've ever seen anyone in my life was when I was in Honduras. I was with a group and we were driving in a van. We were going through a, a city that was particularly dusty because there were no paved roads. I think they were working on that at the time, but as the cars and trucks went by, dust was flying everywhere, and we noticed two boys that were playing right next to the road, and they were filthy, and they were just sitting there, and they were playing, and kind of enjoying themselves, and we had some candy bars with us, and someone came up with the idea, let's give these kids some of these candy bars. These chocolate bars, chocolate in Honduras is very expensive. It also is easy to melt, so it's hard to even get it to people. But we saw these kids and we had some chocolate that hadn't melted. And and so we thought, well, let's go over and drive over and give them these kids. And so we rolled down the window and I reached out. I said, would you like a candy bar? And the face, one of the, the, the face on one of these kids He lit up with more joy than I had ever seen in anybody's face in my life. I thought, here's a kid who has nothing. And if I had said, you just won the lottery, he would not have been more excited about it than getting that candy bar. He was so thrilled. The other boy was thrilled as well. I just noticed the one boy. I remember thinking at the time, that's the face of an angel right there. And maybe it was an angel. You know, when you don't have much, you begin to appreciate everything you have. But when you have affluence, it's very easy for us to overlook it. We cease being thankful and and we don't even recognize it many times. Enjoy what you have. Express gratitude for it. So be on guard against pride. Don't put your trust in wealth. Trust God to provide for your needs. Enjoy what God has given you. The fifth commandment is to be rich in good deeds. Now, this has to do with a different kind of wealth. Reading the first part of 1 Timothy 6.18, he says, instruct those to do what is good, to be rich in good works. Now, when we think of riches, we always think about money, but Paul's kind of very creative here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying, well, there's another way in which you can be rich. Think in terms of being rich in the things you do, in the good deeds. It's a very interesting way to put it. How is someone to be rich in good deeds? Well, if someone is rich physically, we say they they have an abundance. And what Paul is talking about here is we need to have an abundance of good deeds where it needs to be obvious. At the very least, he's saying we should not be average when it comes to the good things we do for other people as we serve other people. He says, no, you have an abundance in this. You need to be known as one who's rich in this, an abundance in the good works department. And part of the reason for this is this is what glorifies God. Jesus said, by this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Of course, around the ridge right now, we're emphasizing things like a serve day and donating coats and Operation Christmas Child. And there are other ways during this pandemic where you can be rich in good deeds. I just encourage you to change the way you even think about wealth to realize that that is a a greater form of wealth when we serve other people. So be on guard against pride. Don't put your trust in your wealth. Trust God to provide for your needs. Enjoy what God has given you. Be rich in good deeds. And then the last two commandments, I'll be a little more brief on these because we've touched on them in the last couple of weeks. The sixth commandment is to be generous and share. Now, I don't spend a lot of time, I don't again want to spend a lot of time on this because we talked about it when I went through 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 
My takeaway two weeks ago was we should live to give. And I made the point that it, it pays to give. In other words, you reap what you sow. I made the point it pleases God when we give. God loves a cheerful giver. By the way, someone raised a, a good question about this. The question was, doesn't God love us no matter what? I mean, could God really even love us more? This said God loves a cheerful giver. And my response was, no, God loves us the same. I think the way I would understand this is God loves it when we are cheerful givers. God looks down and says, I love that when someone is a cheerful giver. We talked about the fact that giving provides an opportunity to grow in faith. It has an opportunity to glorify God as people thank God for what we give them. And it helps bind us together. And so in 1 Timothy 6.18, again, we read, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good deeds, and then he says to be generous, willing to share. And I think many times God even blesses us with wealth so that we can be conduits of giving to other people. But the key word there is willing. I think oftentimes we're just not willing. And I think Paul is saying, open up your heart a little bit more and your willingness to give because God loves again a cheerful giver. And the last point is to store up treasure in heaven. Paul wrote in verses 18 and 19, he said, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share. And then he says, storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come. Storing up for yourself a good reserve. The Greek word for reserve there is a word that can be translated lay away. Lay away treasures in heaven. Of course, this is what Josh talked about and what Jesus talked about. He said, store of treasure in heaven, not on this earth. There's a richness that we can have that's not on this earth. And it has to do with when we give out of our walk with Jesus Christ. You know, you wonder, well, how does someone store of treasure in heaven? And I think any time that we're generous and give out of an outflow of our faith, but there are two ways in particular, I think, that God is really pleased when we give. One is when we give to those who are poor and needy. When we use what we have to help minister to someone else, that really, I think that's storing up treasure in heaven. And another way is when we give to advance the kingdom of God. When we give to the church and to missions and other things that are advancing God's kingdom, because this is an eternal work. This is part of the reason, by the way, a big reason why I am in ministry to this day because this is not really what I wanted to do. I didn't want to become a pastor, but part of the reason I ended up doing it is I realized I could be involved in something that has an eternal return where souls are one for Christ and they'll be with me for all eternity and it's a wonderful thing to be involved in. And others can participate by helping to support that. Let's read verses uh, 18 and 19 again where Paul closes this section with one other thought. He says, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come. And then he says, so that they may take hold of life that's real. He's implying the fact that this, the life in this world is not the real life. It says, Paul said elsewhere, our citizenship is in heaven. We're just waiting for Christ. So don't get so attached to the things of this world. And real living actually takes place when we're not trapped to these things, when we're seeking first the kingdom of God, when we're connected to Jesus, who is the very life giver. He's the one who gives life. And real life is found as we're connected to him. Jim Elliott, the missionary, said, he's no fool who gives 
fool who gives what he cannot gain, keep, I'm sorry, to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, I know I've talked about a lot here this morning. We've covered seven different areas. What I want to encourage you to do is to pick just one of these areas and work on it as an application. For some of you, maybe it's just working on the first point, be on guard against pride. For some of you, maybe you realize, I've been trusting in my wealth, and I don't want to do that. I want to trust in God, which is my third point, trust in God to provide for your needs. Are you really trusting him for that? Some of you need to enjoy what God has given you, to find joy in those things, to celebrate what God has provided for you. Some of you need to be rich in good deeds. You've thought that my only richness is what I have, and I'm giving, I'm giving, but you're not rich in good deeds as well. I think both are important. Some of you need to be more generous and share with what God has provided for you. And some of us need to just have the mindset that I'm gonna be storing up more treasure in heaven. I wanna give you just a moment to think about those things. Which one would apply to you? And then I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge that every good and perfect gift comes from you. Every good gift, every perfect gift, everything that's wonderful comes from you. And we acknowledge that. We are grateful. We are thankful. And Lord, we want to be ones who use what you have given to us to make the greatest impact. We want to be thinking about the kingdom of God and not just the kingdom of this world. And so help us to live in relation to that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we begin a Christmas series. We're gonna be looking at some of the characters that are part of the Christmas story. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.